Hey guys, and welcome to episode 21 of the G2G Performance Podcast. And today we're going to be doing a little bit of a study review on a couple of papers, uh, all about squats and how um, varying certain parts of the squat uh, can maybe change how the lift is performed, and then also change maybe where you, uh, what muscles we use more so than others when we do it. Um, now, part of uh, common gym culture at the moment is to uh, you're only really serious about your lifting if you wear Olympic lifting shoes in the gym. It's kind of I would put it on a stratification of the gym. It's slightly higher than gym gym bro is if you if you have a stringy uh, top but you have Olympic weightlifting shoe, you're slightly better. So basically, if you're serious about your lifting, you have to have Olympic weightlifting shoes, essentially. Um, and it's just like a it's. It's basically a rite of rite of passage at some point if you're if you're into training to buy some, but people often don't dive into why you why you wear those Olympic weighting shoes and and what their what their usefulness is, uh, and how that might change your training particularly when it comes to the squat. So that's what we dive into dive into today, um, and let's get into it now. So guys, today we have two studies um, that we're going to start with uh, and then go into some practical kind of applications off the back of them. Um, the first of which is a study by uh, Sayers et al. Um, from 2020, and it's called The Effect of Increasing Heel Height on Lower Limb Symmetry During the Back Squat in Untrained trained, sorry, and Novice Lifters. Um, and the other paper we're going to go through is um, Marawa et al. Again, 2020, and it's muscle activation varies between high bar and low bar squats. So just to start with, we're just going to get uh, Aiden to go through the Sayers paper first off, and then uh, Laura's going to give us an overview of the Marawa paper. So Aiden, if you want to give us a give an overview, go for it. Yeah, so basically they were trying to test and see if giving lifters a heel lift as in like a, a squat shoe, like an Olympic lifting shoe, would affect um like affect their um it's like force distribution between like their left and right hand left and right legs and affect um like symmetry in their squat. Um, under the idea that um, differences between left and right hand side, um, like strength or force production and mechanics, is a really good indicator of potential for injury. Um, and they were kind of alluding to the fact that one of the main areas here is the ankle um, because of how complex it is. And a lot of issues when it comes to mechanics can come from the ankle, which can then affect like strength in, in the leg that has the, the problem with mechanics. Um, essentially having a heel lift, we clear this up because that kind of gives like artificial range of motion to the ankle. Um, and they were hoping to see or predicting to see between the two groups that they used that the train group would have, would be basically more symmetrical an untrained group would be asymmetrical. So they took uh, 10, I want the right one, or the, yeah, they took 10 males, 10 females, 
10 novice lifters, 10 experienced lifters. So they were novice because they were only just starting out lifting. Um, I should say they, they were using the barbell back squat to test this, but the lifters who were novice were familiar with the barbell back squat. Um, and then the 10 experienced lifters um, were very familiar with a barbell back squat and had at least a 1.2 body weight squat. Um, so ended up with two groups of 10 and then took them through uh, like a series of like basically squats um, up to 50% of the one rep max. And the guys either stood on the ground, basically like flat footed, or else they used um, an artificial like heel lift. So in this case, it was a couple of blocks of wedges that they put on some force plates. And the people either did both squats on the ground or squats with the heels elevated on the force plates. And that was to check to see if there was any difference between the two. Um, and there was a few things that they noticed, but really overall, what they're trying to say off the back of the um, research is that there was a bigger difference in terms of the trained group than the untrained group in terms of like bilateral asymmetry. So the trained group actually had a greater, more or less a much stronger leg or much stronger side than the other side which they expected to see in um, the, the novice group. But there were some other pretty interesting parts, um, but can get into that in a bit of show. But more or less, what they hypothesized would occur, the opposite occurred. Nice. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, and then, Laura, do you want to just give us the same, same sort of thing, uh, overview of the Marawa paper? Sure. So the second paper that we looked at um, was called Muscle Activation Varies Between High Bar and Low Bar Back Squat. Um, and the main focus here with the researchers was to consider what they, they, they class as experienced powerlifters or sort of novice powerlifters, I guess, but, but powerlifters, so people who are used to squatting. And they wanted to look at um, key differences um, in the various muscles that you use in the squat and how they fire um, between these two lifts. So obviously for the high bar squat, we have the bar right up on um, the top of the shoulders. And then for the low bar squat, it's more kind of down your back, sort of over your shoulder blades um, or across the shoulder blades, so diff just different positioning. Um, and they were looking at a variety of muscles. They looked at erector spinae, so some of the muscles in your back that stabilize your spine. Um, they looked at glute max. Um, so we know that's one of the main, most powerful muscles for um, generating power within the squat. And they looked at some of the muscles in the quads as well, just to see what the difference was with these two different moves. Um, now they used a kind of, um, I guess a similar technique to, to what they use in the paper that Aidan described to measure uh, muscle activity. They were using um, EN, EMG um, technology to do that. Um, so that is just um, electromyography. So just using little um, um, measure, like little pads that can be put on top of certain sites up and down the body um, to 
pick up whether or not that muscle's firing um, and, and convert that signal to um, information that they could then analyze. Now, they worked with men um, and the, the test group was only 12 men, so it's quite small. Um, these were sort of young men, um, so around 25, 24 years of age. Um, and they were, they were powerlifters. They were, I think five of the group were about to compete in their first competition, but seven of the group were sort of at national level. Um, they classified these powerlifters in terms of what they were able to move. So to, to compete in this study or to participate in the study, they, these men had to be able to move um, an average of 1.6 times their body weight in the high barback squat and 1.7 times their body weight in the low barback squat. So if you think about what that means, that's it's good, but it's also not, it's not anywhere near elite um, level for a one rep max. Sorry, that's what that metric was for. Um, and what they actually found was that... Um, I, I guess it makes it makes sense if we think about it, but in the low bar back squat, there was a statistically significant um, increase in muscle activation. Um, it's particularly in the eccentric phase. So if you're a bodybuilder thinking about doing this, it's not just for powerlifters here who are competing and choosing between high bar back squat or low bar back squat. Um, the eccentric phase, so the one we would typically associate with doing the most muscle damage and being very, very um, important for hypertrophy, um, the eccentric phase had more muscle activation um, for the low bar, back, low bar back squat than the high bar back squat. Um, and that was their main finding within this paper. But there's actually a lot of other interesting things that they did because they didn't just look at muscle activation. They also looked at pelvic tilt um, and the difference right down deep in the bottom of the squat position, the difference in pelvic tilt you had between these two lifts across their testing group. They looked at um, the degree of knee flexion, um, and they looked, at, they looked at several other things that just let you um, get an understanding for how these two lifts vary. Um, it's not just where you're holding it in the back. The entire movement pattern changes slightly, um, slightly, um, significantly when you move from a high bar back squat to a low bar back squat. Um, and we can discuss some of the things that means for your training when you're thinking about using these two different variants. Nice. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, if we can kind of dive into just maybe a, a couple of what, what, what we guess we be starting with is commonly held beliefs when it comes to um, firstly elevating the heels. I mean, Aidan, you touched on this already um, just previously, but um, for elevating the heels, uh, what does that effectively do for someone um, who maybe uh, hasn't done that before? What does it change? Um, essentially, just increases. Um, like artificially increases the amount of dorsiflexion. So um, you take the heel up slightly, then basically that incline angle of the foot, um, although the degree of uh, range of motion of the joint doesn't actually really change, um, it allows for that angle to be altered. Um, and so the knee can travel further forward and typically the person can stay more upright in their squat. Um, yeah. Cool, perfect. Um, and Laura, for you, I guess, in terms of like bar position, what's like a commonly held belief between say high bar and low bar um, in terms of say muscle activation? Um, I think if you look at the powerlifting community and people who are competing, I think that a lot of powerlifters would prefer to compete with a low bar back squat because we it's more common, I would say, I don't know if, I can't think of the, if I've ever seen anyone who's got the other way around, but it'd be more common to be able to lift more load with a higher bar back squat. Um, there's something that's a little bit easier about the high bar back squat in terms of the bar path and how your body has to move around that 
um, than, than, a low, than a high bar back squat. So it's easier with a low bar back squat to get yourself really deep down into a squat um, and to kind of come back up again. Because keeping it upright is just so much more challenging, I think, on your, on your core and on your spine than it is to, to roll it into a lower back squat position. And, and then I guess if we, if we assume that we are lifting more with that low bar back squat, to me, it's a natural assumption that you're getting more glute max engagement, which is the key um, muscle that generates that power. So I think that the, the findings of this paper are in line with what we see in the powerlifting community and what I would expect to have coming out of this paper. Um, definitely. Um, Cool. I mean, uh, Aidan, you kind of touched on it as well in terms of, of, of the paper you summarised. Um, was there anything that, uh, in terms of how they conducted it, that was just like a little bit um, that you thought might, might, might uh, lead to some maybe ero some erroneous finding in some way? Or um, was, it, was there good parts of the study as well? What sort of stuff did you, talk, did you think about that? Um, I kind of found it fairly fairly frustrating. So it was a lot of stuff that they didn't measure. Also, so the what they took was was guys who typically didn't train with heavy loads. So they stay within a um an eight to twelve uh rep max load. Um and then they tested them with fifty percent um of that max and also they kept like the rest time to two minutes and said that should allow for adequate recovery. So it was eight reps of fifty percent max. Um, I, I'm not too sure if, if I would agree with that, give adequate recovery given the conditions and things like this, and the guys are probably just generally just stressed. And also, try doing lots of sets of 50% of your max for eight reps whenever you're trying to display a good form. And you would be pretty tired. Um, so I don't think that that was particularly well done. Um, I would say also at heavier loads, you would probably see that difference significantly. At lower loads, there's probably more of a likelihood for people to show... Um, Asymmetry, bilateral asymmetry, especially, um, well, we just say especially experienced lifters. I don't know. So essentially, they're saying that the experienced lifters had a greater bilateral asymmetry. So one stronger leg, if you want to look at it simplistically, than the other one, more or less. Um, and then, like, well, if that, you don't know if that would have cleared up with change at heavier loads. They did acknowledge that. It's not like they say that they didn't. Um, they also didn't test, um, like, changes in terms of flexion, range of motion in terms of sagittal plane, like they weren't really looking at uh, trunk angle, forward lean, um, how much knee travel was over the, the, the toes. Um, I get it's a pretty difficult study, but also whether the guys usually trained, maybe I missed this part, with uh, lifting shoes on or not lifting shoes on. Um, also the aspect that when you were lifting shoes, like the angle of your foot, when you change it, the, this, the wedge moves with the angle of your foot. These were fixed blocks, which meant that they traveled straight down the way and the slope, you couldn't angle that wedge. So if you had quite a turned out angle at your feet, like you were gonna, you'll probably collapse quite heavily in that one as well. There's just stuff that, like, that could be interesting too. It didn't explain particularly well on it. Um, and also, um, but there wasn't any, it said about there wasn't any significant injuries or previous injuries in the past. Like if, I guess if you wanna see the effect upon uh, limitations in dorsiflexion, but it sounds like that's what they're trying to do. Does the ankle, like limitations in the ankle, affect bilateral asymmetry at all? It might be better than to take a group that had previously suffered an ankle injury, had a reduction there, showed them squatting flat footed, and then the bilateral asymmetry from that, and then giving them a heel lift and see did it change that. Um, 
so I'm not I'm not hugely sure what I come up with the research demonstrators. I'm, I'm like, except that under really submaximal loads, experienced lifters tend to have a more dominant side. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The, the uh, <laughs> that's it. That's the trouble. Unfortunately, with some some studies it's kind of like they didn't really show didn't really show nothing, but they didn't show a lot at the same time. So it's kind of a, a bit of a middling sort of finding. It's kind of leaves us with okay, but doesn't really. Um, I think protocols are pretty were pretty good though. I just think like it's it's a hard thing to do. Right? You get it. like yeah, like starting off and it's like okay, we need to do this in different ways. So it's just it's like. I don't know if you've tested anything here particularly well. Um, I, I, I do kind of ag agree with what you said, Aidan, about maybe the way they chose their test subjects, because I think I remember reading in that paper that one of the things that had already been observed in other research or it is known in the literature or something was that um, uh, difference in about 20% or something of mobility uh, with the left and right hand side when it came to the ankle was enough to indicate that uh, um, an injury might occur at some point. So by working with people who'd never had an injury, you were almost by default selecting um, a set of people who were unlikely to have that asymmetry. Um, yeah, like they, they keep being like, maybe I missed this and stuff, but they were, yeah, they're talking about like uh, a threshold of 15% and then not going as high as 20% as, as in some studies, but trying to say that above 15% is, is concerning in terms of um, mechanics and just, just force production. And then um, if it's related to return to play, return to a sport and a previous injury, then um, more conservative estimate of, of a 10% difference is, um, is maybe problematic if there's previously been an injury. Um, I just, yeah, I just think the sample size, uh, the, the, basically the sample they use wasn't great to assess this at all. Like none of these guys are brutally strong um, either, and they weren't really testing. Not to insult anybody, but they weren't. Um, they weren't really testing um, high loads, high intensity to see the difference upon that. Um, and then essentially saying that there was like greater than that fifteen percent difference in a lot of these guys. But is that fair to test that upon people who are not used to? using very intense and heavy loads um, and also not really testing them on that either because that's where the biggest risk of injury would come from yeah definitely um i think uh that's i think partly that's just tough to do for for exercise science studies is just getting people who are relatively strong um it's just mm -hmm. a difficult recruiting process for that um but uh, the one, the one thing just uh, brought back memories of going to being a sports science uh, undergrad and uh, doing your kind of uh, practical hours in the lab, and we did some stuff with with the similar systems they used in this study, where they put reflective markers on all your joints, and we did like five or something, and these guys had to do seventy seven on on ten different people, which is just unbelievably that is so painstakingly because you have to make sure it's the right bone exactly the right bone right area it takes so long oh my god that's that's unbelievable that i did that for 10 people so i do have a little bit of sympathy <laughs> that would take so long to do for them but i guess if you're if you're good at it i'm sure it took way way quicker than when we did it but um yeah 
that was an intense intense practical time yeah um laura so same kind of question really um any kind of noticeable limitations and then some kind of general takeaways from it um i'm actually pretty impressed by the um amount of detail these guys collected so the amount of information or the amount of data they collected for a single test subject is pretty impressive and I like the fact that they weren't just measuring the muscle activity but they were measuring all the joint angles and because that gives them explanatory power for their observations so once you start to see what position someone is in it makes sense um, and you can explain the results that they're seeing and um, the statistical analysis is very um, it's almost like these guys are good statisticians or they've worked with good statisticians to produce this but the main issues i'd say are probably quite similar um they're working with what they're calling um advanced powerlifters but if i figure out what those numbers are for me i i don't think they're that advanced to be using those numbers um as maxis they're good they're, they're better than maybe your average in the gym but they're not like people who are um, maybe great powerlifters um that's maybe unfair, but that's what I would say. Um, they're testing them again really far from what their maxes are too. So they're working with 60%, 65%, and 70%. So again, if I'm thinking about 70% of a max attempt and what I'd be training with that, these are more appropriate for a bodybuilder doing very high volume training, these kind of numbers. Um, so again, how much of this would actually carry over when it comes to a powerlifter going for a true max, you know, and how much would the muscles that you're using change when you get some form breakdown coming in there? You wouldn't probably have form breakdown at these numbers. These would be really good, clean reps. Um, whereas we all know that our form does change and we can experience a lot of different things happening as we get to much higher percentages of our max. So it's maybe more appropriate to a, body, a bodybuilder doing um, hypertrophy work. Um, I would also say that for, as a statistician um, or as someone maybe who, who does do a little bit of um, stats, a testing group of 12 people is very small. So they do do things like calculate, you know, variance and calculate confidence intervals. And But when you're working with a sample that only has 12 people in it, that's really small. Um, I know it's difficult to, to maybe get more people than that in a testing group, but I would, I'd always be really suspicious over um, how much this would actually carry over to um, other people that's a that's a very small testing group so that's been my, my main concern but the actual analysis that, that they do on the data for that group is excellent um, I wouldn't say that they aren't being rigorous in their approach they really are I just want to see this kind of analysis thrown out um, to a larger group although having said that I think that the results that they find aren't flying in the face of common held beliefs they're more just supporting what I would say our beliefs already are with with a little bit more um, of a very very good piece of analysis on that small group you look like the, like because there's like that is just a general kind of belief um, that I can't imagine it changing massively but I agree with you in terms of like 70 percent um one rep max of the like they were encouraged to go with their own cadence so just be interesting if they if they slap the electrodes on them and just said like accelerate the weight as, as hard as you can what would be the difference would you see a difference um uh the bit that um that is weird because most studies who do emg do tend to tell people to do that um, the other, yeah. yeah and uh the other thing i think it was that study Getting them mixed up myself as well. Uh, no, that's not the right one. Um, was uh, I think they normalised the EMG to body weight squats, which is 
it's usually normalized to a maximum maximum contraction of the muscle so that's another thing that's just a bit odd but um i still think it would because if you're normalizing it to something i guess it doesn't necessarily matter as much i don't think but uh if, if it's all normalized to the same thing i guess it doesn't make a difference but um it's just a weird a bit different to what i've seen done before that's all the um the like they were kind of going on a lot in that one about like the eccentric phase um, being so much greater as well in the the low bar back squat um yeah. and i don't know I'm, I'm not too sure how many guys high bar squatted and how many guys actually low bar back squatted but um they, they had them all do both no i know but like in competition oh sorry what what their norm was mm. um so if your norm is a high bar back squat um usually especially if you're giving someone and this mightn't happen but allowing them to go to their own cadence you usually utilize um a rebound at the bottom and the stretch shortening cycle to a much greater degree or definitely rebound anyway at the bottom of uh your um high bar for a lot of people than you would do for you can't really get away with it for a low bar to the same degree so that aspect of kind of hitting depth and stopping and coming back up i would just wonder if that would have had a greater uh, we doubted actually but i wonder if that would have a greater emphasis in terms of what they observed from the eccentric loading um but you may see differently if that was but it could have been it couldn't have been it mightn't be like basically a a low gravity do its job kind of um high bar back squat but if it was it would affect that I guess another thing that you could maybe argue here is that the um, the high bar back squat was performed first for each of the people in the test group um, and they were then given 30 minute rest before then moving on to low bar back squat. Um, I'm not sure how much you could sort of say about that high bar back squat movement obviously being done more cold. Um, there was, there was, a, there was a, a little warm up given to everyone but um, how much of that high bar back squat activated the muscle groups that then were called upon again. Um, when the low bar back squat was performed. Um, there could be a possible benefit to low bar back squat by coming second. Maybe, I, I would say because the central RM was quite relatively medium, like 70% or it was like 60 to 70%, isn't massive. I don't, if it was like a max, I'd say, yeah, maybe you'd have to do it on like a separate day or something, um, just to be sure. But um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, Cool. So uh, in terms of just taking what we've said from the studies there, from what we can um, and mixing it, I guess, a little bit with our own um, understanding and how we might vary using um, elevated heels and using a different bar position for, for people. Uh, what situations um, would we use, say, uh, a mixture of that? So elevating someone's heels and then getting them to do say a high bar versus a versus a low bar um or say do, getting them to do say a flat shoe with high bar or low bar squat what sort of situations would we do that in in terms of the person themselves and then also during their actual training training that they are doing i realize that's a big question but <laughs> it's just the starting point <laughs> Also, the bit that was interesting because for regardless of high bar or low bar, they got them to use power lift twos, whatever, for their so typically, if you are low bar and you tend not to use a heel lift or not a lot mm -hmm. of times, just less what high bar you do, like, um, 
Yeah, I just don't know how that much how that would have had an effect in that. Like giving guys who maybe don't use that and being like, here you go, let's go for a low bar squat, and then they're like really slowing down the eccentric phase or something like that. Because like I guess it's weird. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think the thing that's really cool about both these papers and how we can try to pull it together to think about how people should train in the gym is um, you can see that both of these papers really have at their root um, when you're going into a squat position, what joints are moving and how far and to what degree um, and what's happening in the body. So, you know, we're talking about the ankle and how much you're kind of moving through the ankle. We're talking about what's happening at the knees and how much that knee comes forwards over the toes. We're talking about the um, degree of flexion that they're getting at the hips and, and, and the pelvic tilt that's involved there as well. I'm looking at the diagram right now for the sort of average results in this the paper. And we're also talking about how much forward lean then comes in with the um, upper body in order to get down to that maximum depth. So I think when someone's thinking about what this best squat position is for them, um, you'll have two things. You'll, you'll ha- have to think about the mobility that you have in, in your various joints. And if there's a restriction somewhere that could lead to you needing to prefer one thing over another, you know, whether you elevate the heels or whether you don't, whether you use high bar or low bar. Um, and then we'll also have maybe trying to get different people to get their glutes to work and, and, and which of these techniques you can do to, um, to help with that. So, I think that in total, we can kind of pull together how someone moves and where the restrictions are, and then what we could do to help them move um, in a better way, better both to make them stronger and better to minimize injury. And you could use a variety of these techniques based on the person you're working with. So um, I don't know if you guys maybe have some stories of particular people and and what their issues have been and how some of these things have helped them work around that from um, your extensive coaching experience or, or not. Um, I mean, one, one thing that I sometimes use as a starting point to help decide if someone might need a, need a heel lift is just a really simple, like, uh, ankle, um, dorsiflexion test where you just put their foot against the wall and then just let, try and get them, their knees touch the wall and then just move it a bit further away. Um, and basically if you, if you can't touch the wall when your, when your toes are touching the wall. There's probably a little bit of range of motion lacking in, in your ankle and it might be worthwhile thinking about using a heel lift. But there becomes a bit of discussion there if it's like if it's worth uh, just by bypassing that whole mobility thing by just adding heel lifts. Uh, or if you actually want to like dive into getting into like trying to get more range of motion through your ankle. So um if you're a powerlifter and you're trying to like get go for your first meet and you're not too far away from from that point, then I would just say just get some lifting shoes and just go for it and just get used to using them. Um, but if you have a bit more time, it's probably just generally quite a good thing for general movement. It's probably useful to try and at least do some flat shoes or flat feet squatting in as some part of your program to try and help um, improve that to a degree. Um, but then yeah, from, from there, for me, uh, I, I tend to use high bars and assistance to a low bar most of the time um, for powerlifters. Um, as uh, commonly for some reason, well, for me, I tend to attract people who have quite strong backs. <laughs> so often their legs are relatively weaker compared to their back. <laughs> so uh, a high bar in like not 
necessarily reflective of the papers, but in training experience, that tends to target more of people's quad muscles. And so uh, there tend to be the area that are lacking when people have very strong backs and posterior chains. And so the high bar is a way by being very upright and by, in theory anyway, allowing greater amounts of uh, knee flexion and then for extension should cause more quadricep muscular strength to increase and also size. Um, so that's generally like a general how I would do that. And then hopefully transitioning from that into the low bar and hoping to carry across that uh, greater leg strength into it. So it helps have the additive effect of they're already strong in their posterior chain plus being a bit stronger through their quads to, to come together to then make them make an overall stronger competition squat. What about some of the um, common problems that people can report when they're doing their squats and maybe if there's something they could do to something that they'd be best to avoid if they're tend to experience those things or, or maybe best to lean into if they have other issues. So for example, things like, you know, um, butt wink or someone who tends to sort of excessively tuck their bum under at the bottom of the squat. Is there one of these lifts that is better for them um, and one that would maybe exacerbate that problem? Aidan, do you want to go with this one? <laughs> um, there, uh, there's not a specific when it comes to like, like um, lumbar flexion or 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 like butt wink. Um, you kind of just pick the one that, if it's excessive, causes it. Um, so, some people have a bit of butt wink, and it doesn't matter too much. The only Concern is if, if you release tension in the bottom of a squat there, it can be really, really difficult or if it's, ex if it's excessive. Most of the times it's dependent why it happens and it can be several things. And it can just, it can just be, um, can be a mechanical problem, can be joint range of motion, or it might just be motor control. Anything like you're not used to it. Some people's butt wing cleans up under load. Um, but if you find that it happens as a limitation of range of motion um, at your ankle, it's unlikely that we'd be the ankle too much unless the ankle changed movement somewhere else. But it usually comes from if it's mechanical, your hips. Um, and so doing something like a wide stance can usually sort that one out. If you go wide stance, pretty hard to do a wide stance high bar. It's really, really uncomfortable. Um, so at that point, you probably want to go. <laughs> yeah, but it's not very nice. And you'll probably not have hips for very long. Um, so at that point, you'd probably want to go. Um, High bar or or sort of issue. Um, so see when it comes to anything like dorsiflexion um, and limitations and angle range of motion. Um, just trying to figure out if it's the joint area itself or it's something else is usually worthwhile because sometimes you know you, you just slap on a bandage and ignore it and it can become a problem later on. Um, so it, it depends um, as to whether or not you, you should do something about it or just change your mechanics. Um, the helpful thing is if it's problematic, it usually shows up somewhere else in something. Um, but I guess if it is, um, if it is butt wink as a result of not fantastic range of motion at the hips, you probably want to go low bar with a wider stance um, in terms of being able to get an initial training effect. And then over time, um, just see if you can make improvements there because it will help. It will help in terms of reduction and in injury risk. Um, 
prolonged training, um, variation movements and things like that. But that would be a, a pretty good starting point. It's kind of a workaround for, for not great ranges of motion at the hip joints. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is um, a definite kind of, particularly I'd say in powerlifting now, it's kind of part of the, because you used to be like, uh, your converse was the, was the shoe of choice for a powerlifter. And now it's very much like the Adidas Olympic lifting shoe or now the Nike lifting shoe um, is definitely the way that people tend to go. It's like a rite of passage to get that when you, um, when you first start powerlifting. Um, and without, and sometimes I guess without thought of why am I actually using this shoe? Like, what's the reason behind using it? It's just like, this is what I need to be part of this community. Um, and that's a different thing, I guess. But um, <laughs> the, uh, if we think of, so we said already about kind of, uh, when would, say for a bodybuilder, we said mostly powerlift so far. So when would, um, say, a low bar squat be be a useful option for a bodybuilder and then versus like a high bar squat laura what do you think um so i think we've kind of um from this paper and also kind of from expectation talked about there being um more glute max activation and also more quad i think it was across all the muscle groups um uh it doesn't look like more quad from the diagram though uh, let's talk about glute max um more glute max activation, especially in the eccentric phase. So it makes sense for a bodybuilder to think about getting as much as they possibly can out of their off season if they're trying to grow um, and maybe be using a low bar back squat. Also, we tend to see that, I can't think of counter examples. I can lift more with a low bar back squat than a high bar back squat. You could get more load, therefore, through, uh, through each repetition and get more volume in over the course of a week uh, working with a low bar back squat. Um, I think as to the considerations for a bodybuilder in the off season, I would say that you're really trying to go for as much volume as you can get in there. So any way I could optimize that, I would go for. Um, at the same time though, if you tend to hate a particular kind of lift or tend to really struggle with a particular kind of lift, it maybe highlights that there is a weakness somewhere in your kinetic chain or some kind of movement limitation. And I would want to circle the lifts I was using or cycle them as a way of not allowing any of those weaknesses to persist. So I'd probably use the least favorite lift also in the off season um, as, as a kind of accessory lift or as an alternative, just as a way of not letting there be weak points there. When it comes to prep, I would say that if one of these lifts exposes you more to um, injury, maybe best to avoid that because my priority always for deep in the depths of prep is to minimize risk of injury because one of the worst things you can have happen as a bodybuilder in a prep is, is to have an injury and even to have a few weeks to a few months where you're not able to do a particular movement because that then, you know, while you're cutting quite excessively, um, really puts you at risk of muscle mass loss if you're not able to keep up um, your training through that muscle group. So I would say in prep, go with the one that you can do most safely. Um, I don't know, Aidan, do you have anything to add for a bodybuilder? Or do you disagree with me? No, no, I, I would just say um, for generally, if, if you can perform a, a high bar safely without issue, I, I would opt for that initially, just in terms of ranges of motion, um, tend to be, uh, you tend to be able to achieve a greater range of motion. You can get um, a good effect with like, the same level of loads and um, 
generally it's got a slightly greater carryover to um, other movements and helps maintain joint range of motion. Um, powerlifters, when your your basis is to lift as much weight as possible, you, you, you limit range of motion to get that, you optimize it. And sometimes that can be detrimental, um, you know, hence the helpful idea of, of training through range outside of the, those lifts. Um, again, if you really like low bar and, it, and it's great and you can do a lot of volume without problems there, then you'll, you'll get decent muscle mass growth out of it definitely. But if you are able to perform both okay, then I, I would go high bar. Um, and um, because the fact what it, in terms of range of motion, also it's less stressful in your shoulders, um, like holding a, a low bar position just tends to be fatiguing in your, your shoulders as well. And you have to take that into account, which sometimes isn't great if you try to keep um, that you're trying to do a, like a heavy shoulder session or something like that when it comes to bodybuilding. Um, but that would be it. Oh. It's said it's just preference more than anything. But if, if both if both were fine, I'd go, I would try and go high bar if you could do it. That sounds like we're saying the opposite to uh, maybe what the main finding of this paper is, which is more muscle activation from the low bar. Um, it it the like the low bar is more muscle activation then that's fine but that in that like the degree was much greater in terms of eccentric face and a lot of them um, like there's there's other optimal parts like when it came to the the high bar for instance like glute mead seemed to be um, greater was it glute mead I think it was no glute max was um, four times more for high bar and the concentric phase. So that's why if you're going hip extension, athletic movement, you probably want to go high bar. That's what I mean by asking the carryover and the other stuff. So you got to think like in terms of like other aspects of low bar position that if you do low bar and you build a lot of mass and strengthen it, I would argue you may need to do more stuff around that to maintain range of motion and other stuff. It's quite hard to get full hip extension on a low bar because of the bar position. And also in the concentric phase, it's kind of shown in terms of, um, unless I've read this incorrectly, that concentrically, leap max is um, activated more. Obviously, there's more damage done during the eccentric phase, but I think there's a bit of give and take. I would say overall, when you come into building mass, like are you, unless there's a, like I say, unless it comes down to literally problems with one squat variation, if, if someone can do both and you're taking a bodybuilder, like it's the extra mass or load they'll get upon that bar for um, low bar going to be worth just doing the, the alternative, which is going to allow for them to have greater range of motion, not fatigue their shoulders, and then get that volume in elsewhere. Um, my opinion would probably be the latter. Yeah, I suppose I wasn't actually thinking there about um, as a bodybuilder wanting to move um, through as full a range of motion as you have available to you because you want to be able to get that muscle um, fully lengthening mm -hmm. rather than working with a, a reduced range just to have more load in that reduced range. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Um... From my own experience, definitely, um, with trying to kind of stimulate quad growth, I've found that, uh, for particularly for quads, um, that a greater range of motion and trying to use like extended forward knee position definitely seems to help me massively trying to feel them working. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that makes sense when you're trying to 
it's specifically if you're trying to get those those areas to grow high bar would be a slightly better choice there um one <clears throat> one thing that could be would be interesting is to um say you have someone who uh so in my experience with doing with using olympic lifting shoes um and seeing people use them um I think some people rely on the shoe itself too much and then don't actually push back into their push back into their heels when they're actually squatting. So they're actually just like actually almost pushes them forward more almost. They kind of fall forward even more. Um, and uh, so sometimes uh, it can be, I think, yeah, it's useful to include stuff where they have to go flat footed. Um, what, uh, but maybe not in a squat pattern, for example. So maybe in some single leg exercises, um, they could use those to then, um, like you said, kind of balance out the fact that you're maybe not using your ankle range of motion there and keeping your uh, heel flat to the floor, um, which, again, in my experience particularly, um, weirdly made my quads work a lot more in the high bar squat when I did that, which wouldn't make a lot of sense because usually the common held belief is you like sit back further in your squat to feel more say your posterior chain but for me I actually made my quads work way harder and um, when I was doing the squat which I don't I know I don't know if you guys have ever heard that or seen that but that's what my experience was but I did have ridiculously tight calves at one point um and uh and uh the uh even though they're really small they're very tight <laughs> they, uh, I remember uh, have a physio giving me some acupuncture on them and I almost kicked him in the face about 10 times and then they were uh, straight afterwards I don't know people might not have had acupuncture but if you get it sometimes your muscle cramps like crazy afterwards if you've had it really bad and I couldn't walk like three steps so I haven't to stretch my calf for like the next Jesus. day or something it was so ridiculous <laughs> but the effect was like ridiculous immediately oh my god i could squat so much better just from that it was it was really stupid actually it was just it was crazy. acupuncturing yourself at the start of every squat session <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that was so did it really purely and just doing it really purely and just like bleeding all over the gym people just kind of going why is that guy <laughs> <laughs> If I just get it right, it'll change. I'll do a PB today. <laughs> yeah, just completely. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh. I, I feel something similar. I like to uh, elevate my heels if I really want to feel it in my quads. Um, elevate my heels, point my toes forwards more, take a little bit of a narrower stance, hmm. and then it's just oh, the quad is the quad burn is intense. Um, oh, yeah. And I am a person who's very quad and back dominant, even in a squat without doing that. Um, and I usually have to work to activate my glutes, but yeah, doing that, lifting up the heels, I, I usually do it just by standing on a plate um, and training barefoot rather than putting on powerlifting shoes. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, elevating the heel on a plate, sorry, not standing up on the plate. Feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think people go like to the nth degree with that though sometimes. It's people on like, a, on like two plates. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Their, uh, their, their foot's like, um, almost at like a sheer 10% incline. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, what? <laughs> what is Gary over here? <laughs> but I mean, it just looks ridiculous. Um, 
But yeah, it's funny. I think that's funny when people do that. <laughs> I'm like, in training in uh, high heels like stilettos <laughs> just to get yourself. <laughs> just absolutely smash your toes though, like the whole time. If you're going heavy on that, you'd absolutely smash your toes. It's like, yeah, that's brutal. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that is us bumping up on time, I think. So um, yeah, so thanks, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Um, we uh, covered a couple of papers today. Um, we're going to do, do, a, do a podcast like this every, every month or so if we can, where we just overview some papers and then try and take the pra- practical applications from them to give you some advice on, on your training or nutrition. Um, and so today, really, um, the main takeaways are that um, when trying to do uh, low bar versus high bar, um, generally speaking, uh, low bar is going to cause greater posterior chain activation, um, particularly more so maybe in the eccentric part or the lowering part of the lift versus versus the high bar. Um, and high bar tends to cause greater amounts of um, quad activation um, from more of a training uh, knowledge aspect. Uh, and then also adjusting ankle position can be a useful tool if you do lack that range of motion. Um, and so adjusting your training when you see fit to um, work on certain aspects during different times of the year can be useful in terms of training high bar maybe further out from competition or say when we said about bodybuilders it might just be a better choice overall to use that um, but then at times cycling in lower bar if you um, say want to just go to a lower rep range and add some extra load um, so you can feel a little bit more of that if you're always at a higher rep range that can be a useful tool as well but yeah, hopefully you guys got something from today. Um, if you did or have any further questions, then don't hesitate to get in contact and also drop us a review if you like what you hear today uh, on iTunes and Spotify. Um, we will be back next week. Okay, bye. <laughs>